Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the China Untold podcast, a platform dedicated to sharing lesser-known stories for the world's most populous nation. I'm your host, Matt Bossens, coming at you from beautiful Beijing, China. Parts of the North American continent are literally littered with ghost towns, abandoned settlements left to weather and decay, and be reclaimed by nature. The Western United States and Canada enjoy a notable abundance of such forgotten settlements, thanks in large part due to the boom and bust cycle of resource towns in the 19th and 20th centuries. In California, there is the town of Bodie. A former gold settlement located in the Sierra Nevada mountains, not far from the California-Nevada border. Bodie was named after a man named Waterman S. Bodie, who had discovered gold near Mono Lake. The town was home to nearly 10,000 people during the late 1870s. In addition to housing for prospectors, the town boasted saloons, opium dens, and no shortage of sex workers in its red light district. Bodie experienced a slow decline. It would not be completely abandoned until the 1940s, when the post office closed its doors for good. North of Bodie, in the state of Montana, lies Virginia City, founded in 1863 and once home to roughly 10,000 residents. For a brief period, the town served as the capital of Montana Territory. As a gold town, the settlement's fate was intimately tied to the supply of gold in the surrounding hills, and once that ran out, the town was abandoned in the late 19th century. North of the 49th parallel in Canada, the province of British Columbia is home to dozens of abandoned settlements with fascinating stories. In southeastern BC, in the Kootenay region, lies the abandoned town of Sandon. Founded in the late 1800s, after the discovery of a silver vein, the town would swell in size and eventually become home to thousands of people. It would boast saloons, hotels, a post office, a theater, a city hall, and even a library. The town would ultimately go through several phases of abandonment before finally becoming a ghost town when the post office closed in the early 1960s. A ten-hour drive northwest of Sandon is one of Canada's most famous ghost towns, the town of Barkerville. The town was named after English prospector William Barker and popped up after Barker struck it rich with gold in the surrounding countryside. Barkerville was founded in the early 1860s and, at its peak, had a population of around 5,000 people. There were general stores, churches, a school, a theater, and other entertainment venues. The town would eventually go into decline, though, and its transient population of big dreamers would move on to other places. Unlike Sandon, Barkerville would never become a true, fully abandoned ghost town, as it was eventually named a historic site by the provincial government. Today, Barkerville is beautifully restored and draws hordes of visitors to experience life on the frontier of 19th-century Canada. 
You were probably wondering what on earth abandoned pioneering and mining towns in Western North America have to do with China, and that's a fair question, although the answer may surprise you. It turns out Chinese people share a long and complex history with many of North America's ghost towns, a history that stretches right up to the present day. While preparing this episode of the podcast, I discovered a goldmine of fascinating content. No pun intended. There are dozens, hundreds, and probably even thousands of incredible stories of Chinese miners, adventurers, and laborers working and living in now-abandoned Canadian and American towns. As a result, this will be a first crack at a topic I plan to visit again in future episodes. In this 14th episode of the China Untold podcast, I will introduce you to several West Canadian ghost towns and their links to China and Canada's early Chinese immigrants. The story of Quinell Forks in British Columbia goes something like this. The town was founded in 1860 as a major supply center for the Caribou Gold Rush. But a few years later, the newly built Caribou Wagon Road bypassed the town, and most miners and other citizens fled two and a half hours north to the town of Barkerville. After that, the remaining residents of Quenelle Forks slowly cleared out, and today the town is completely abandoned, with old log homes standing in various states of decay or having been fully reclaimed by nature. Except there is more to the story of Quinell Forks. I don't know about you, but when I think of the various gold rushes of the Wild West, I picture rugged white men with beards, bad teeth, and gold pans. It's an unfortunate result of the images used in textbooks when I was a kid. Images that depicted a very white frontier in North America. Of course, these images and the late 20th century textbooks they are found in are in no way representative of the incredible tapestry of peoples and cultures that carved out a life for themselves in the Wild West. In Quinell Forks, the population was a diverse group, composed of Europeans, migrant Hawaiians, Jewish people, indigenous people, emancipated slaves from the United States, and Chinese miners. The town's former Chinese population is noteworthy due to its significant size. According to one of the ghost town's current caretakers, during its early years, Quinell Forks was the third largest Chinese settlement north of San Francisco. In the 1870s, roughly a decade after its founding, the population of Quinell Forks had dwindled to roughly 100. Most of them were Chinese migrants. As the town fell into abandonment, it became more popular among Chinese miners, who could work and live there without having to deal with the ugly racism of the time. One interesting tale I came across while researching this episode was rumors of a lost Chinese mine in the hills north of Quinell Forks. The story involves a massive gold deposit that was discovered by a group of Chinese miners in the 1860s and mined for several years. Although these Chinese miners were unable to relocate the mine years later after a massive forest fire devastated the region. This fascinating story was recounted on an episode of a Canadian TV show called Gold Trails and Ghost Towns, 
which aired in the late 1980s and early 1990s. I'm going to play a clip of the show now, although I'd like to note some of the language used is dated and definitely problematic by modern standards. So a few of the Chinese set out to prospect the immediate area, and two Chinese in 1864 crossed over at Four Mile, crossed over the North Fork of the river, and went up past Kangaroo Gulch and disappeared into the hills. They returned a few days later, loaded down with pokes, leather pokes of gold, and it was coarse lead gold like the, like the gold we'd seen in the picture. Now this indicates the area they were going into. So we see Quinell Forks were looking north, yep. and somewhere in those hills back there, according <laughs> to the Chinese, according to Ah Tip, and according to Ah Tom, and, and all the other Chinese individuals who were concerned with this mine, it was about nine or ten miles from Quinell Forks, probably what they called half-dry digging, so they would use a rocker there rather than sluice, so it probably was a high ancient channel. And how long did these Chinese miners utilize the, this, uh, mother, this load here, this wonderful richness? It was so rich, they mined 1864, 65, 66, and 67. By that date, they had achieved multi-millionaire status in China. They decided to go back to Canton. They took their gold with them, went back to Canton, ready to retire in absolute luxury like medieval princes. The living was so riotous and so high for the older Chinese, he died. And the younger Chinese stayed there right till 1871, lived like a prince. Was not too worried, felt that if he ran out of money, and he wasn't well-schooled in that, that he could come back to Quinell Forks, rework his old mine. He did run out of money in 1871, came back across, had enough money for fare across the sea, and went, went to Victoria, over to, over to Yale, up the Fraser River, up past Quinell Mouth, and right to Quinell Forks, back where he came from, but the country had changed. In 1869, a devastating forest fire, which you can follow in the old newspapers, like the British Columns, swept that whole country, destroyed all the landmarks he had used, including probably some very, very cleverly marked trees that he, they were no longer there. They'd been yeah. burned. 18 Chinese, had been, 18 prospectors had been killed in this fire. He went back, still convinced that he could find his lost mine, and looked for the remainder of his days north of Quinell Forks, north of Four Mile, and somewhere north of Kangaroo Gulch. Never did find it, but the individuals who knew him and knew the story, other Chinese, were convinced that the mine existed. They had seen the gold, they knew the two old miners, and they knew that the mine existed, so therefore they spent up to 70 years looking for the Seven mine. Seven zero years. Seven zero, from 1871 right till the 1950s until the last Chinese disappeared from Quinell Forks. Men like Ah Tip looked every year. Some white men like Shorty LaHaye looked every year. Many, if not all, of the characters who ventured to Quinell Forks came with dreams of striking it big, and most eventually moved on, none the richer. By 1940, only 50 resilient residents remained. One of the town's last remaining residents was a Chinese man surnamed Wong, and he died from exposure while trekking for supplies in the winter of 1954. These days, the only proof that Quinell Forks was once home to a Chinese community is found in the town's segregated cemetery. Cantonese names adorn headstones and visitors today may occasionally stumble across long holes in the graveyard, indicating that a body has been exhumed and returned to China. 
The town site presently boasts 21 buildings in various states of preservation, connected by well-maintained trails leading to the cemetery and a campsite. Interpretive signs in Chinese and English are located throughout the ghost town. During the summer between the 8th and 9th grade, I developed an absolute fascination with ghost towns. As a result, I dragged my family along with me to a slew of abandoned towns scattered across British Columbia and the western United States. One settlement in particular left an impact due to its colorful history and incredibly remote location. Port Douglas was founded in 1858 along the shores of Little Harrison Lake, a small body of water located directly north of Harrison Lake, which is a 60-kilometer-long glacier-fed lake in southwest British Columbia. The town was built as part of the Douglas Road, a safe route to the gold fields in the province's interior. Port Douglas is said to have served as the first capital of the colony that would eventually become British Columbia, although I cannot find a solid date to back up this claim. It was the second sizable settlement on mainland BC after the town of Yale, and it served as a major steamboat port for the caribou gold mining operations in the north. According to historical records, in 1861, the town's populace was made up of approximately 97 Chinese people, 40 Americans, 20 Mexicans, 17 Europeans, and 6 people of African descent. Port Douglas would go through multiple phases of abandonment, but by the 1970s, the proud town was a shell of its former self, deserted and quiet. Like many settlements in North America, Chinese people played an important role in the development of Port Douglas, and if the stories are true, many of them may have given a lot more than just their sweat and tears to build the town. Many of them may have also given their lives. Although I can't recall when and where I first heard the story I'm about to recount, it has stuck with me since my teenage years. As I mentioned earlier, Port Douglas was built at the head of Little Harrison Lake, which is connected to Greater Harrison Lake by a shallow canal that runs from north to south. As the story goes, the channel connecting the two water bodies was dug by Chinese migrant workers, who were likely selected due to the highly dangerous nature of the job. According to one account, the canal's construction resulted in a high body count, with one dead Chinese man for every meter of the Port Douglas Channel. Admittedly, I have had trouble tracking down hard scholarly evidence to back up this story, and it is entirely possible it is simply a piece of Gold Rush folklore. That being said, there are reasons to believe the story. For one, during this time period, Chinese laborers were regularly delegated to the most dangerous and unpleasant tasks, a gross result of a racist society with varying values for human life. The construction of the Canadian Pacific Railroad is a prime example. Between 1880 and 1885, as many as 17,000 Chinese men traveled from South China to British Columbia to work as laborers on the railroad. They were paid less and given the most arduous and treacherous work to do, such as blasting through the Rocky Mountains. 
According to China Daily, more than 4,000 of them died during the railway's construction in landslides, cave-ins, disease, and explosions, and they were paid half of what the other workers received. All told, Chinese railway workers sacrificed more than one life per mile of track. Unfortunately, Chinese workers were heavily discriminated against while they were the nation builders of Canada. In 1885, immediately after construction of the railroad was complete, the federal government of Canada implemented the Chinese Immigration Act, which put a head tax of $50 on Chinese people to discourage them from entering the country. This amount later went up to $500 per head. In a 2016 Vice article that discusses the history of Chinese miners in the British Columbian ghost towns of Colmont, Blakeburn, Granite City, and Quenelle Forks, it is noted that mining companies regularly failed to properly document the names of Chinese workers. In the article, anthropologist and ghost town expert Laura Cuthbert notes that if there was an accident in a mine, companies would document the names and details of the white miners who had died while simply listing racial slurs for the Chinese workers. While I have no evidence to back up the story of the Port Douglas Channel's alleged Chinese builders and their high death toll, the tale remains a troubling reminder of the very real discrimination and hardships faced by Chinese immigrants to Canada. Other famous ghost towns in British Columbia also had large populations of Chinese people. The aforementioned Barkerville had as many as 3,000 Chinese people living in the town at its peak, well over 50% of the population. These residents of Chinese descent were a major part of the community in Barkerville. They established a number of important businesses and facilities, ranging from corner stores to a nursing home. The town's Chinese benevolent associations provided a large range of services to the Chinese community and helped settle disputes among Chinese community members without the intervention of the provincial police or courts. Granite City is another fascinating ghost town with Chinese heritage. While many historical records state that Granite City was founded in 1885 after a man named John Chance discovered pay dirt in Granite Creek, there is considerable evidence that Chinese miners were working and living in the area as early as 1860, 25 years before the arrival of white miners in the area. Interestingly, it seems most of the early Chinese prospectors working in the area did not spend a lot of time panning for gold on Granite Creek, where John Chance's large gold find was made. Instead, these miners worked on the surrounding rivers and streams. One theory for why these Chinese miners avoided Granite Creek was shared on another episode of Gold Trails and Ghost Towns from the 1980s. I'm going to play a clip of the show now, although I'd like to remind you that some of the language used is dated and definitely problematic by modern standards. Now, the Chinese mined throughout this whole area. Why didn't they mine on Granite Creek? Well, there are several theories. My theory is that they mined all the other creeks in the area. There's no doubt about that. When the white miners came in in 1885, they found Slate Creek had been worked in Boulder Creek and Eagle Creek and Bear Creek and Champion Creek and Collins Gulch. All of them had been worked. 
except for granite. And the probable reason is the Chinese, I think, probably had prospected Granite Creek. But Granite Creek is, is, um, is sensitive to very, very high water, especially because it comes down a narrow draw. So if it rains in the upper part of Granite Creek, that creek comes up very quickly. And if a Chinese had been caught there, one of the prospectors, he probably would have been drowned. I think that one of the Chinese, there was a fatality, a Chinese fatality on Granite Creek. They walked away from the creek because the creek they considered was bad water. Bad wah? Yes, it was, it was evil spirits, and the Chinese were kind of prone to, to uh, shy away from creeks. Gold with. wasn't enough to lure them past that again? Uh, evidently not then. During its heyday, a considerable portion of Granite Creek's population was made up of Chinese and American immigrants. Today, the only sign that Chinese people once made the Gold Town home is found in the town's silent cemetery. The long and often complicated relationship between West Canada's resource boom towns and China didn't end when these settlements were abandoned. In fact, China's connections to British Columbia's ghost towns stretch into the 21st century. In January 2015, it was announced that a Chinese mining company from Hebei province had purchased the entire town of Braden. Braden is an abandoned town located in BC's Bridge River Valley, near the world-famous Whistler Ski Resort. Originally founded in the 1930s, the town once served as a home to miners from the nearby Braylorn Gold Mine, although it was quickly abandoned when the mine closed in the 1970s. The Chinese company that purchased Braden is called China Zhongya Group, and the firm paid nearly one million Canadian dollars for the full title to the town. According to a news report from the time, this included the streets, fire hydrants, 22 homes, and 50 acres of land that comprised the town. The Chinese firm reportedly became interested in the former mining town after seeing that its previous owners had placed the property on the market in 2010. The plan at the time was to refurbish the town and bring its amenities into the 21st century. China Zhongya Group had hoped to attract tourists to come and stay in the town and partake in exciting outdoor activities, such as hiking, fishing, whitewater rafting, and winter sports. Unfortunately for the Hebei-based company and the deserted town of Braden, these grand plans were quickly abandoned. Just seven months after purchasing Braden, China Zhongya Group put the town back on the market for $1.2 million due to changes in BC's immigration rules. According to a news report from July 2015, the company was planning to recruit more investors to help develop the town through the provincial nominee program. The program previously allowed people to immigrate to British Columbia if they invested enough money to develop a business and create new jobs. But the province halted new applications in March 2015 due to an excess of applicants. The province then decided to change the qualifications. I'll admit I'm unsure if China Zhongya Group was ever able to sell the town site. I browsed through plenty of articles and blogs while researching this episode, and I found no evidence to suggest that Braden had been sold again after being initially purchased by the Hebei-based company over half a decade ago. 
of course, for, for all of you listeners that are interested in buying Brayden, I have reached out to China Zhongya Group for clarification on whether the town site is still for sale. Unfortunately, due to the fact it is so close to Chinese New Year, I have not got an answer back yet. Once I do, I will add an update to a future episode. If the company still does own the town, it's likely its China-based representatives have not visited the town site in some time, considering that most international borders are closed due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. I reckon the only visitors Brayden receives these days are probably bears and the odd urban explorer. When looking at the immigration issues and racism faced by early Chinese migrants to Canada and the immigration policy changes in 2015 and their impact on the Chinese buyers of Braden, it's hard to compare the two and draw any fair conclusions. That said, it is noteworthy that over a century after the Chinese immigration tax and the racism in mining towns such as Quinell Forks, Prospective Chinese immigrants still face challenges in British Columbia, even if they are planning to invest millions of dollars in revitalizing a dormant economy. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the China Untold Podcast. To learn more about the podcast and to find a list of sources used for this episode, please visit our website, www.chinauntoldpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at China Untold, and on Facebook by searching China Untold Podcast. Once again, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to catching you next time with another fascinating story in the Middle Kingdom.